Well, good morning, church family. I want to welcome you if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does. I invite you to open me to Hebrews chapter 12. And while you're turning, I want to, one, welcome those of you in Arlington and Montgomery County and Prince William and Loudoun and online. It's good to be together around God's Word. And I want to introduce you to my brother Solomon up here. So would you welcome Solomon with me? Solomon obviously cannot see you, but he can hear you, which is going to be pretty important for uh, what's about to happen. So a little background on Solomon. Well, uh, we were just talking about this, and I know he would not, well, he's definitely not doing this to be known for this. But so this is a brother, he's a junior in high school, who is on his own volition along with some other guys. Uh, they have decided to memorize this fall, to memorize the book of First Peter. And so he's got, uh, what, how many chapters? Three chapters. So uh, what I'm going to ask him to do right now is blindfolded to recite all three of those chapters off the cuff. No, I'm just kidding. He's not going to do that right now. But uh, it's just, I, I praise God for his grace. And this brother and in other teenagers in our church family may, uh, I, I would say they're setting an example for us. May we love the word so much that we hide it in our hearts. So... What I'm going to ask Solomon to do today, though, depends on you helping him out. So he's obviously standing on a stage, blindfolded, and he's about to start walking around. There is obviously a ledge on this stage. And it's not that far down, but I would say sufficiently far to not feel good if you were to walk off the ledge. And so what I'm going to do in just a minute is I'm going to spin Solomon around some, and then he's going to start to walk. And as long as he's walking a safe distance from the stage, then I want you to clap for him. Now, obviously, if you're at other locations, uh, feel free to join in. <laughs> he obviously can't hear you. But if it helps to feel a part of it, then feel free to go for it. But for those in the room especially, I want you to clap if he's at a safe distance from the stage. Say about anywhere from right, right here back. If, though, he gets closer to the ledge of the stage, then I want you to stop clapping and instead yell out, we love you, okay? Because if you love him, you will not let him walk off this ledge. Make sense? So you clap if he's in a good spot. If he's walking, getting too close to the edge, then you stop clapping and you yell, we love you. Make sense? All right. Do you trust these guys? All right. All right. Here we go. Let's start spinning Solomon around where he has no idea where he is on this stage, how far he is back or not. Okay. I think we're at a good spot. Okay, now, he's going to trust you as long as he is at a safe spot. You clap for him as he walks. Let him know by saying, stopping clapping and saying we love you if he gets to a not safe spot. You ready? All right, start walking. That was so great. That was powerful, forceful. We love you. So, and you notice a little ginger walking, uh, just making sure he gave you guys time to respond. All right, let's do it one more time. Here we go. All right, you're not going to know where you are on this stage. There you go. Okay. 
All right, I think that's probably good. Okay, so remember, I want you to walk when you hear them clapping. I want you to stop when they say, we love you. Okay, go for it. <laughs> there were a couple of you guys clapping. Like you wanted to be like, oh, he's got it. He's got a few more feet. He's okay. All right, would you give it up for Solomon? Thank you, brother. You got that. So it's not a perfect illustration. It breaks down at different levels, but it's intended to be a simple illustration. It is good to have people in your life who love you enough to keep you from walking off a ledge, especially when they can see things that you can't see. And that is what I want to show you today in a way that is much more important with much more at stake than potentially walking off the ledge of a stage. So we're in week eight of 12 weeks on why you need a biblical church in your life, how God has specifically designed the church for your good, to meet your needs. And today I want to show you in God's word that you need biblical accountability and discipline. And I need biblical accountability and discipline. I want to show you how you and I need a church that graciously and lovingly holds us accountable for following Jesus and even carries out a process of gentle, loving discipline when we are not following Jesus. In other words, you need a church that graciously and lovingly keeps you from walking off a spiritual ledge. But let's just acknowledge from the start, we don't think we need this, at least not naturally. Think about what, what child... What teenager comes to their parents saying, I just need you to discipline me. Mom, dad, I just want discipline from you. No child, no teenager thinks or speaks that way. But ask that question. Do children, do teenagers need gentle, loving, wise, good discipline? Every parent in this room is nodding their heads in, uh, well, trying to play it cool. But inside, you're like, of course, yes, I sure did. And I praise God for parents who loved me enough to discipline me, to keep me from myself, and to help me grow into the man God's designed me to be. But who of us is so arrogant as to think that once we graduate high school or college, that once we get to this age or this stage in life, that we can now see everything perfectly and we no longer have a need to grow in order to become the men or women God has designed us to be. After all, to be a Christian is to be a son or a daughter of God, to have 
God as our Father, which means that to be a Christian is to invite the gentle, wise, loving, good discipline of God in our lives. This is Hebrews chapter 12, straight from God's mouth. Look at it with me, starting in verse 3. Consider him, this is talking about Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And thus sets the stage for the rest of the verses in this part of Hebrews 12 to revolve around what it means to be a son or a daughter of God. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. If you don't have discipline in your life, you're not a child of God. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Who of us doesn't want the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives and in the church? Well, that comes through what? Discipline. From God our Father, who cares about us. This is for our good. So much that he will pull us away from sin and help us grow in holiness. Did you see that phrase? That we may share his holiness? Share the holiness of God? So how does God discipline us then? And the Bible talks about different ways God disciplines us. But one of the primary ways is through his church. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where God tells the church, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So God has designed the church to help restore each other when we are caught in sin. So let's just... Just meditate on this verse for a minute. Just soak in like every word. So brothers. And the picture here is family. This is not fundamentally about organizational and all practices and policies. This is brothers and sisters loving each other like family. Walking alongside each other in life. Not just confronting each other in sin, but caring for each other and encouraging each other and building each other up. That's what family does. Build each other up. So family, if anyone is caught, and the word here basically means trapped in sin. The, the picture here and in other places in the Bible is 
confronting someone who is continuing in sin, even when they're lovingly confronted about it. So this is not discipline for someone just because they have sinned or maybe even if they're wanting to or trying to turn from sin. This is someone who's caught, who's continuing in sin, not turning from it. When they're caught in, that's key word, transgression, what the Bible calls sin, this is not about confronting pet peeves in each other or things that we wish were different in each other. This is what is clearly sin or transgression according to the Bible. You who are spiritual, so don't do this in the flesh. Your character should savor of the fruit of the Spirit in this. You should exude love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Spiritual. And you see that word gentleness later on. What a picture. I, I think of people I know who have experienced church discipline and instead of fearing, feeling cared for and loved, they feel called out and ostracized, which again can be challenging because even Hebrews 12 said that for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But God is going out of his way in the Bible here to say, yes, it's painful, it's hard, so do this with the gentleness of Jesus. And what do we do? We work to restore. That's the goal here. This is not about making someone pay for their sin. It's about restoring someone to closeness to Jesus and the church. The goal of accountability and discipline is restoration to Jesus. And you and I need a church, a family of brothers and sisters who will do this for us. So let me summarize this in a sentence that I hope represents what we're seeing in God's word here, that we need a church that will love us enough to lead us away from sin and toward Jesus. On a continual basis, like every day. We, we don't just need people to confront us when we're nearing or falling off a ledge. That's why I wanted you to clap for Solomon back here. We need people who are encouraging us daily in our relationships with Jesus. And then when we near the ledge, when we're caught in sin, Galatians 6 one, we're continuing in it, maybe even in a way we can't see. We need brothers and sisters who will lovingly help us turn from it. Did you know this is actually one of the first things Jesus ever taught us as the church? So if you have a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 18 with me. The very first time we see the church mentioned in the Bible is in Matthew 16, just two chapters before this where Jesus teaches that the church revolves around confessing him as Lord. It's a foundational teaching of Jesus on the church in Matthew 16. Then, two chapters later, the next time he mentions the church, it's only the second time he mentions it, listen to what he says. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the 
church. There it is. Second time he's even mentioned the church in the Bible. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So did you catch that? This is Jesus giving us very clear, specific instructions about what to do when a brother or sister in the church is continuing in sin. And this isn't number 100 on a list of 101 things Jesus says to do in the church. It's at the top of the list, right after confessing him as Lord. Jesus outlines this process that we've talked about on multiple occasions before. Step one in the process, private correction. If your brother sins against you. Now, you may notice some of your Bibles have a small note that takes you to the bottom of the page where it says some manuscripts do not have the words against you. So this is one of the few places in the Bible where there's a bit of discrepancy in some of the earliest manuscripts we have. They're called variants. But like other small variants we see like this in Scripture, they don't affect any major teachings of the Bible, Christianity. And even in these passages, they're so small. Even, for example, in this, regardless of whether it's a sin that a brother has committed against you or not, we know Galatians 6.1 has made clear, if a brother or sister is caught in sin, period, then do this. Go to him between you and him alone. Go to that brother or sister in Christ to talk about this. Now, I should add the caveat here, a very important one, that if there is ever a situation in which you are in danger or that requires law enforcement in some ways, then involve appropriate authorities without question or hesitation. When that's not the case, then the picture here, Jesus says, go to a brother or sister in Christ. Biblically, gently, as we've talked about, humbly. Think about Matthew chapter 7, Jesus saying, why do you look at the speck in someone else's eye when there's a plank in your own eye? First remove the plank from your own eye, then you'll be, see clearly to help remove the speck from a brother's eye. Examine your own heart before the Lord, before you go to them. And as you go to them, the goal is to gain to win over your brother in such a way that hopefully they will say, thank you for helping me in this way. Yes, I need to turn from this. And by the grace of God, they will. And your communion together in Christ will be all the sweeter and deeper. This is such a good thing. And this should happen all the time in our relationships with each other as a church family. All the time helping each other. We're all prone to sin. We all help each other turn from sin. This is what we do as the church. And then, in those rare situations where a person will not listen and receive loving, gentle, biblical correction and turn from sin, when that's not the case, then step two, Jesus says, is small group clarification. Take one or two others along with you. Whole picture here, background in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, where others would be witnesses to the truth of something. So you invite another believer or two who lovingly, biblically, gently, humbly go to that brother or sister to talk about what seems like unrepentant sin Involving others will help bring to the surface, is there actually unrepentant sin there? And if there is, then this small group of people will help clarify, brother or sister, you need to turn from this. But then, Jesus says, if 
So if a brother or sister refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. Step three, church admonition. And the picture now is the body of Christ and leaders, pastors, elders who shepherd that body encouraging someone to turn from sin. This is God saying to each of us, hear the the picture here from God saying to you, if you as my child are caught in sin, I love you so much that I'll send my entire body and bride after you. I love you so much. I don't want you to be left in your sin. And then Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, as the church is calling someone back to Jesus, then go to step four, church exclusion. Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat them as like they are outside of the church, which obviously does not mean we stop loving them. After all, how are we supposed to treat people outside the church? With love and compassion. But Jesus says, if they're continuing unrepentant in sin and they refuse to turn from it to Jesus after all this, then don't acknowledge them anymore as a member of the body. And let's be honest This last step is really hard to even understand. Like church exclusion? I thought the church was the place where everybody is included. So to say, no, you're no longer a member of this church, that seems to go against everything we think, doesn't it? But this is what Jesus is saying. And this is what the New Testament church did. and I want you to see why. Let me show you one more place in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to turn over there, I'll have it on the screen, but we've studied this passage before too. A letter to the church at Corinth. It was a city filled with all kinds of idolatry and immorality, specifically sexual immorality. And Paul writes to the church about a man in the church who was continuing unrepentant in clear sexual immorality. It's not that he had fallen once, repented, and turned from it, or not that he was continually struggling with this. It's he was going headlong into sin and would not turn from it at all. Hear what God says through Paul in his word to the church at Corinth. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So that's the first time we see this language. Let him be removed, excluded from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as at present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. We'll come back to this. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven. That's the third time. Remove the old leaven. That you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders and not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's the fourth time that God makes crystal clear this person should be out of the church. So this was the moment when Paul pretty much ruled himself out of being on the cover of church growth magazines <laughs> or popularity contests in any culture. And it wasn't just here. One other example among many, Titus 3, 10 through 11. The Bible says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So why do this? Why have nothing to do with someone when it comes to membership in the church? Remove someone from membership in the church. Again, this is assuming they've not repented. This is not, uh, you sin, so you're out. Or, or, hey, you're still struggling with sin, so you're out. That's all of us are in that boat. All of us. This is your continuing in sin after, warn, after lovingly being encouraged, warned, cautioned, turned back from that, follow Jesus. They're not choosing to do that. Why would a church then exclude someone from membership? Well, three reasons. Follow this. One, God says, do this for the good of each person, including that person. Do this for their good. Did you catch verse 5? I'll come back to this uh, slide in a minute. But you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I wish we had more time, just if we were just studying this passage, to dive into what that means. But what's crystal clear that I want you to see is the why. So that. What's the purpose? So that. Purpose clause. His, clause, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, which is a reference to the day of judgment before God that we will all face. God is saying this is good for that person's soul for all of eternity. The picture here is the hope that when someone is removed from the church, maybe then they will see the seriousness of their sin and they will turn and again be restored. That's the whole picture. It's all about restoration. Think 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Paul later encourages the same church at Corinth to forgive and to restore someone who at one point had caused much pain in the church and had been excluded from it. And this is the heart of the gospel. It's why 1 Corinthians 5 here in verse 7 mentions Christ, our Passover lamb, being sacrificed for sin. So if you're visiting with us today, uh, maybe you're exploring Christianity, you might not realize what this phrase means, but it's a reference to the gospel, the good news at the heart of Christianity. That though all of us have been created by God, 
We have all sinned against God. Every single one of us has walked off a spiritual ledge, turned from God's ways to our own ways. And as a result, we deserve, all of us, myself, every single one of us, deserves judgment before a holy God for our sin. But the good news of the Bible, the greatest news in all the world, is that God loves us and God has made a way for us to be restored to him, that God sent his son, Jesus, to do what we could not do, to live a life of no sin, and then even though he had no sin for which to die, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for sin as a sacrifice for sin. That's the picture here in the Passover lamb. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for sinners. Then three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin so that anyone, anywhere, no matter how far you've gone off that ledge, no matter who you are, what you've done, if you will put your trust in Jesus, God will forgive you of all your sin and restore you to relationship with him for all of eternity. This is the gospel. It's the greatest news in the world. And we invite you to believe it today. Put your trust in Jesus today. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, turn from your sin and yourself. Put your trust in Jesus. And then when you do, doesn't it make sense for the church in your life to continually say, keep turning from sin and keep trusting in, following Jesus. That's the whole picture here. So that, go back to it, purpose, so that you might be restored, walk in closeness to Jesus and his church so you might see the seriousness of your sin and receive the forgiveness of God for the good of each person. Do you see now how church discipline in this way is the most loving thing a church can do? How it's actually unloving? If a church sees someone caught in sin, continuing unrepentant in it, and lets them continue down a destructive path? How much do you have to hate me to see me walking off a ledge and say nothing to me? Like it's a picture of love to do this. You don't need a church that lets you walk off the ledge. You need a church that loves you enough to keep you away from the ledge. This is a big part of what our church groups are about. I need, you need to be in relationships with other people who, are, who see our lives, who share our struggles, who pray for us, who encourage us, who help us stay away from sin. And when we're caught in it, help us get out of it. Do this, God says, for the good of each person. Second, for the good of the church. Did you notice something? Look in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul never actually addresses the person who has committed sexual immorality. Instead, he addresses the church. And he holds them accountable for standing idly by while this man is caught in sin. And God is saying, that's not good. He's confronting the church. Did you hear him in verse two? He said, you should be mourning over this. And the word there means to mourn over that person's sin as if it's your own. But instead of mourning over sin, they were ignoring it, not just to the detriment of this man, but to their own detriment. Did you catch the imagery in verse 5 of uh, the leaven 
uh, let me see if I've got it in here. Uh, it's back here. The leaven that was talked about, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. The whole picture here, very clear. One person's sin does not just affect them. It affects the church. We know this, right? Sin in my life doesn't just affect me. My sin affects my marriage. My sin affects my parenting. My sin affects my work. My sin affects all kinds of people around me. My sin doesn't just affect me. And your sin doesn't just affect you. Go to Joshua chapter 7 to see the effect of one person's sin on the entire people of God. So do this, God says, for the good of the church. Unrepentant sin left unconfronted spreads unhealth in the church. And it brings dishonor to God. That's the third and ultimate reason for church discipline here. Why do this? For the good of each person, for the good of the church, and for the glory of God. Did you notice? Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, when he said, you are arrogant. Later he said, you're boasting is not good. Now this, let's think about this, is so different than the way we think. Because we think it's humble and kind not to confront others in their sin. Like that's their business, not mine. So we, in what we would think is humility, just kind of sit back and watch them continue in sin. And the world certainly thinks this way. Mark it down. Whenever we carry out church discipline according to God's word, whenever we remove someone from the church, people will say, that is arrogant. If you were humble and gracious, you'd welcome them as members of the church. But God says the exact opposite. God says it is arrogance to ignore continual unrepentant sin like it's no big deal. It's the height of pride before me, God says. And it brings dishonor to me. Paul starts the whole passage saying, not even pagans in the world around you would condone what you're condoning in the church. So what's the takeaway from all this? We need a church that will love us enough to lead us away from sin and toward Jesus. And I just want to highlight that word love at the heart of this sentence. It's why when I was thinking about, okay, what can I have people shout out to Solomon as he's walking toward the ledge? Like, stop or turn back. No, I wanted to choose, like, we love you. That that would be the picture here that we need to be in relationship with other Christians in a church who love us enough to do this in our lives. And think about the implications of this. What this means is it is not loving for you to come and just sit on a Sunday in a room like this and then move on with your life. 
You're not loving, being loved the way you need to be loved, and you are not loving other Christians the way they need you to love them. Who are you looking out for like this? This is love according to God. It is loving for you to be a meaningful member of a church where you're loving others and being loved by others in these ways. You need this and others need this from you, Christian. And then to anyone in this church who is caught in or continuing unrepentant in sin in ways that are harmful to you, to others, to the church, And even for those who've been removed from the church at any point in the past, hear me, us, as an entire church family saying, I, we genuinely love you. Genuinely, sincerely, and want, long to see you restored to Jesus and to the church. That's the goal. We want to... See sin seriously, and we want to celebrate grace and restoration seriously. I think of a story represented in our church family. So there was a mom who got pregnant outside of marriage, and the dad wanted to abort the baby. But the mom said no, and she went to a church, not this church. This was actually in a different country, and the church shunned this mom told her that she wasn't welcome there because of her sin, which is obviously not what the Bible is saying. This, this, this woman was turning from her sin, wanting to follow Jesus, and she was being shunned from the church. Well, she gave birth to a baby boy. She decided to send her little boy to that church, even though she wasn't allowed to attend. And he grew up, and he became a follower of Jesus. And a couple of summers ago, that once little boy, now grown man and brother in Christ, moved to Metro DC and he visited NBC. He just so happened to come here for the first time on a Sunday morning when we were at the height of some conflict in the church. And Ken Tucker, one of our elders who led us in prayer here at Tyson's this morning, was sharing with his wife, Judy, about sin and their marriage and God's grace to restore him and them. And this brother said he saw the way this church family didn't condone or gloss over sin, but showed grace and mercy at the same time. And he said he and his wife knew that this was the church family for them. And I share that story because I want you to get the picture. Based on God's word, we pray that both of these realities that this brother observed will be true in this church family. One, we want to be super serious about sin and turning from it because we know the damage it does to us, to others, to the church, and to the honor of our God. And at the same time, we want to be super serious about grace and forgiveness and restoration for fallen, broken, hurting, wounded people because, well, because that's all of us. 
We are all, every single one of us, we are all just steps away from falling. This is not a sermon for those people. This is a sermon for all of us. We all need a church that loves each other enough to keep us from walking off a ledge. And we need to be members in a church where we are doing this for others and they are doing this for us. That's what God is saying to us. And if or when we find ourselves off the ledge in some way, a church that will come to us, pick us back up, and lead us toward Jesus. In other words, you and I need biblical accountability and discipline. So you bow your heads with me all across this room and other locations. I, I'm not going to presume for a minute to know how this word lands on every heart, but I know there are some in this room and other locations right now who you've never put your trust in Jesus. You've never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus to restore you to relationship with God. And if, if that is you, I want to invite you right now just to do that in your heart to say yes to Jesus, to say, God, I know that I've sinned against you and I deserve judgment before you, but I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. So forgive me of my sins and restore me to relationship with you today. And by faith, by trust in Jesus and his love for you, he will do that. He will restore you to relationship with him for all of eternity. And then I, I'm, I'm assuming there are some, maybe many, in this gathering today who may have put your trust in Jesus, but you find yourself right now caught in sin. You've been continuing unrepentant in sin. And God in his love for you is speaking to your heart right now, calling you back to himself through his word. And I invite you, if that's you, just to say, yes, God, I want to come back to you. I want to leave this sin behind. Thank you for lovingly pulling me back to you. I guess... What I'm encouraging you to pray is invite the loving discipline of God in your life today. And for all of us to say that, God, we praise you as our Father. We praise you for your love for us as your sons and your daughters. We're so glad to be your children. And so we say what seems countercultural, certainly to the world around us and even to the flesh within us, but we say to you in prayer today, we want your discipline in our lives. We need your discipline in our lives. We want to share in your holiness. So we pray for humility. God, we pray for the humility we need to receive your discipline and the humility we need to reflect your discipline, to be a picture of your good, loving discipline in each other's lives. God, this feels so against the grain of the way we think and the way the world works around us. So we just say, please help us to be a church marked by biblical accountability and discipline. And please help us individually to do all you're calling us to do, to love others and receive love from others in this way. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.